The following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church at Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. We are starting our new series Sunday today called Carols. I'm really excited about it because I think you and and I are similar and that we have wondered what is the meaning of all these wonderful carols that we sing. We sing them year after year, every year the same carols. And I've always wondered why is it that more youth or more um, worship pastors and worship leaders and song leaders aren't writing more Christmas carols? Because you know that we realize that the carols that we sing every year are about 500 to 1,000 years old. Why hasn't anybody come up with a great Christmas carol like in the last, oh, let's just say 200 years? <laughs> I just think it's kind of weird that that hasn't happened. Where do these songs come from? How are they first sang? What's the story behind the song? Who wrote them? Why did they write them? How did the church respond to those songs when they were first introduced into the church? Because all of our brothers and sisters who have gone before us, hundreds and thousands of years, have been singing and worshiping God just like we do. They worshiped God, we worship God. One day we'll be with them in heaven. But how did they respond to the carols when they were first introduced? How do you like it when Pastor Trevor introduces a new worship song? And so you're asking all these great questions. We thought we'd have a, have a series that answers them. And so in about 20 minutes, we're going to figure out whether or not this was a good idea. <laughs> the first carol that we're looking at today is one of the most famous carols ever written and uh, probably the most controversial, the most misunderstood. So we thought we'd start with the big one. God rest ye merry gentlemen. So I thought we'd break this down into three steps this morning. Okay, briefly, just three things here. One, we would start with just the basic observations about the hymn Two, the story that comes behind it, because it does have an amazing story. And then three, you have to bring in biblical truth for today, right? Or then what are we doing here? Is this a history lesson, right? You know, so come on, we got to make it applicable today. So let's start with the observations. God rest ye merry gentlemen. Now, I have no idea what that means. Does anyone know what that means? Nobody knows what that means. That doesn't mean anything. Is this a song about the napping habits of God? (laughs) Hey there, fellers. God is going to rest for a while. Or perhaps this is, God rest, ye merry gentlemen. And so it means that God is asleep now, and so you guys made it. You're okay. You passed. Or maybe it's God, rest ye merry gentlemen. Uh, Or, I have no idea what this is. How do you know what rest ye merry means, right? God, I understand, pretty basic. Gentlemen, I understand. It's this middle part, rest ye merry, that needs a translation, and that's why it's probably so misunderstood. 
So we need a brief look at culture, I think, to figure out what these words mean. To do that, you have to know when it was written. And we do actually know, sort of. We know, but we don't. We know, but we don't. We know that it was first published in 1760, but historians are almost certain that it was written at least 200 years prior to that. And so to understand that, why that happened, why are we publishing it 200 years later, you have to look at the story behind the music, and we're not there yet, we're still doing observations. So hold on to that, we'll get to it. This is a Christmas carol, but when it was first sung in the church, it was sung as a hymn. It was a worship tune. Now, they sang it on Christmas, Christmas Day, or in the time leading up to Christmas, but it was sung as a worship song. That's not how we sing it today at all, right? I mean, if Pastor Trevor put together a worship list, let's say in the middle of July, and it was all... Christmas carols, you would think, well, is he drunk? (laughs) Or what's going on here? That's not worship, right? That's not worship, that's Christmas carols, and they're different. Well, when this was first introduced to the church, it wasn't introduced as a Christmas carol. It was a worship tune, and they sang it for a short period of time in the church. In the 15th century, to understand these, I think, and especially this phrase, you got to go back to the first 15th century eyes and look at it from their perspective. And so historians tell us that the word Mary meant something very different to them than it does today. Words change over time. We know this to be true. And so the word Mary back then meant great and mighty. Great and mighty. So the best and strongest soldiers the king had were the king's merry men. King's mighty soldiers. And the word ye isn't too hard to understand. All you have to do is watch Monty Python, Holy Grail, and you've got that one figured out. (laughs) I digress. Uh, It means you. It means you. So far we have, okay, God rest you mighty men. You with me so far? What does then the word rest mean? The word rest to them, 15th century eyes, meant to keep or to make. To keep or to make. So with adding a little bit of punctuation, we have this, our final translation of God rest ye merry gentlemen is this God make you mighty gentlemen now that's pretty cool isn't it (laughs) I could sing a song like that I like that I like the sound of that God make you mighty gentlemen and ladies (laughs) I guess to include the women (laughs) but I like the sound of that You know, that's far better than the other one. But that's what it meant to them. And so when it was introduced into the church, there was great controversy. In fact, this went all the way to Rome and to the Pope. 
The story behind the story. Number two. The story goes like this. Back in the 15th century, worship in the church was sung in Latin. Now, the people didn't speak Latin, but worship was in Latin. So if you're uneducated or poor, you had no idea what they were talking about or singing about. Okay, You just went, and it sounded spiritual. If you knew Latin, then you would know, and you could sing the songs, and they were all sung in Latin. And every song was somber and dark. It was a very depressing experience going to church. Apparently, the church leaders of that day didn't want people to get too excited about their faith. You know, don't get too excited. It reminds me of a story of a lady who uh, got so excited in church and she just couldn't help herself. She screamed out, Hallelujah! Right in the middle of the service. And so the usher went over and said, Hey, shh! She said, I'm sorry, I can't help, but I just got the joy of the Holy Spirit. And he said, well, you didn't get that here. (laughs) Kind of how church was back then, you know? A little kind of rough. So because the worship experience back then was, we'll say, yuck, a layman wrote this tune. We don't know who wrote it because it wasn't a person of, in the church. It wasn't a pastor. It wasn't a bishop. It wasn't a, 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 a father. Or a, it was just some person who wrote it. So we don't know who the author is. It's unknown. It was a woman or a man. We don't know. But it was obviously somebody who really understood Jesus and who he was, who had a, a good grasp of theology, wrote this song. And it's written with this upbeat, joyful, great proclamation, hopeful proclamation. And so it caught on right away, and people were singing it everywhere in the towns and the streets, and it was being sung all over. And so it naturally made its way into the church. That's how things go, right? Eventually, the church picks up on it, always about 20 years later. Song goes into the church, and guess what happens? War. It caused a huge fight within the church. Nothing has changed in 700 years. I have found, by my own experience, that nothing is more contentious in the church than worship. It's the one thing we love to fight fight about. In fact, I've been a part of so many church fights about worship, I can't even recall how many there were. People love to complain about worship. They love it. In fact, it's the number one complaint every single year, year after year, complain about the worship. It's too loud. It's not loud enough. It's way too long. We sing the same songs over and over and over and over. It's so short. The worship leader cuts off the Holy Spirit right before we're getting into the flow. It's too much like rock music. It's too much like a funeral. Why do they have to use drums? I can't worship to drums. 
Why do they have so many musicians up there? Why do they have so many singers? Why aren't there more singers? Why are we going to sing some new songs? We always sing new songs. We never sing any new songs. It's too dark in here. I can't see. Turn the lights out. It's too bright. These hymns are so weird and boring. Hymns are the absolute best way to worship. Hymns are the worst way to worship. The young people don't appreciate these older hymns. The old people don't get the new times. Bring in the organ. Take out the organ. Bring in the piano. Take out the piano. Bring in the keyboard. Take out the keyboard. Acoustic worship is the best. I sure miss the organ. <laughs> Welcome to my world. Last night, I swear to God, I had a nightmare about a movie that's coming out, and it was called Worship Wars. <laughs> will you stand with the rebels, or will you fight with the force? Grab your hymnal saber and come to church, and may the farce be with you. <laughs> it's no wonder people don't come back. The truth is, though, as long as there's been worship and music in the church, there's been fighting and quarrel and critiques about it. I tell you, as long as it's been there, you've had this kind of thing going on. And when God rest ye married gentlemen, when found its way into the church, it started a worship war. And I found this awesome quote. I got to share it with you. This is, this is one of the church leaders of the 15th century saying this, and I quote, Our father and bishop, this is a, a uh, priest writing to his bishop, What are we going to do with the worldly music being sung by these weary youths? This merry-making songs of joy has got to go. It's unholy and may cause others to sin. Some are even dancing to it. Unquote. And you're thinking, well, what song was that? Was that Highway to Hell? <laughs> no, it was God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. That's the song that they hated. It was so worldly. And so, and I kid you not, you can look it up on Google, the church banned the song from being sung for over 200 years. Cast out of the church. Worldly music. And it wasn't saved until 200 years later when Queen Victoria came by. She loved the hymn so much, she ordered the Anglican church to allow it back in. And so it did, and then it spread across the whole world. And all the while, I can't help but wonder if God is up there in heaven and looking down at all of this and saying to himself, what will they fight over next? The color of the carpet? <laughs> and it brings me to the final point for today, number three. What is the biblical truth behind all of this? Well, my first thought was don't go to church, but then I thought, well, that can't be right. 
So I was thinking about this and wondered, why do people and good people fight so hard over the music? Why is it so important to people that our worship be a certain way? And I came up with this answer. If anyone in church, in our church or any other, complains or fights over worship and music, then they have one of two problems or both. Their first problem is they just don't understand biblical worship. If you're going to fight and quarrel over worship, then you don't understand what worship is. Because if you look at John chapter 4, and this is probably one of the most significant passages in the Bible. We studied this, if you recall, not too long ago. John chapter 4 it was probably around summertime. We were into that. And you remember we talked about Jesus was meeting with the Samaritan woman at the well. Remember the whole story. But we didn't really go into the whole aspect of worship there. We didn't have time. We kind of went through that quickly. But... Let's go back and take a look at it there, and I think you'll see, you'll understand the true meaning of worship. It starts out, and we get to this point where Jesus reads this woman's dirty laundry, just lays it out right there. And so she responds to him in verse 19 with a question. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain... But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. You have to understand what an absolute massive change this is in the concept of worship. Massive, massive change. The Samaritans believed that worship was in a certain place because they believed their father was Abraham and where Abraham came to, came to sacrifice and offer his son, that was the holy place, the holy mountain. Samaritans worshiped there. Jews worshiped in Jerusalem and you worshiped in a place. Moses taught we worship in the tabernacle. Nobody would ever think of worshiping God out while they're tending to their sheep or their cows or riding in their chariot or at home. Worship was done in the sanctuary. It was in the tabernacle. Worship was only done in a location. It was a location and it was a specific form and it was a specific ritual. Do you realize that the books of the Torah, those are the five books of Moses, right? Moses wrote these five books. And it explains how to worship, but they didn't, it wasn't enough for the Jews, so they added 1,800 other books to explain the five. 1,800 books. Good grief. They had a symbol and a meaning for every single thing they did when they came to worship the Lord. 
if you worshipped anywhere other than the tabernacle, you would be accused of strange fire. So nobody did it. It was about the building. It was about the form. It was about ritual. And Jesus comes along and turns the whole thing on its head. Completely turns it all over and says, it's about none of that. Whoa. None of that? Yeah, he threw everything out. Jesus says, worship is no longer bound by location. Nor is it a form or ritual. And there was no more powerful illustration than when Jesus died on the cross and in the Holy of Holies where the curtain separates God from the people. At the moment Jesus died, that curtain was torn in two. Symbolizing that now anyone has access to God anywhere. Anyone, anywhere. This was radical. It was absolutely radical. Blew her mind. And as the gospel unfolds to people, especially people of that day, it blew their minds. Man now has access to worship God anywhere. Anywhere. Think about that. Let it sink in. It's not about form. It's not about ritual. And we say, well, I don't have form. I don't have ritual. Oh, yes, you do. You absolutely do. Why do you sit in the same chair every week? <laughs> explain that to me, and then I'll explain the other. <laughs> Jesus said, listen, it's different now. Worship is, is from the heart, and it's a heart issue. And when we fight and quarrel over the form and ritual and location of worship, it grieves the Holy Spirit. It grieves God. Jesus changed worship from something being out there, something we do, to something in here, someone I am. It's a massive change. And people who fight over the semantics of worship clearly don't understand that. If it's real, if it's from the heart, then it's true worship. If it's fake, if it's ritual, it's not true worship. And so the second problem I think people have, people who fight over worship, the second problem they have is a very low view of God. Let me explain. Jesus said to her in verse 23, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, what does that mean, God is spirit, and that we worship him in spirit and truth? It means that worship is a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual activity. It is a coming together of our spirit and the Holy Spirit, God's spirit and our spirit, communing together, coming together. You might say to me, well, how does that happen? Well, our spirit is weak, frail, dirty, broken, hurting, worn out, and need of hope. God's spirit is full of joy, full of life, grace, peace, hope, and on and on and on and on. And so worship can only happen when God serves us 
first. God serves us first. It's why they came up with the term worship service. It's because if God doesn't first reach down and touch us and meet us, we will never be able to touch him or get near him or have anything from him. He gives to us everything. God serves, he gives himself. If God doesn't give himself to us in worship, then we don't get worship. We have something else. It's empty. It's a form, it's a ritual. It's not worship. But when God gives of himself to us, then we can respond to that with, oh God, I am a sinful man. Lord, help me come and touch me and fill me. I'm so desperate and hungry for you. And God responds to that cry. That's worship. That's worship. That's me giving and loving myself, loving him, loving God, giving myself of him. And he giving himself to me. But you might say, well, that doesn't sound like worship in our church. You know why? It's because when you come in here each week, you do not come with that correct understanding. You see, if on your way to church, you're driving along and you're thinking to yourself, I can't wait to get there to get something amazing from my father. Because as we corporately worship together, there's something special, and my Father will give himself to me, and then I will have all that I need. Coming to church would be like receiving gifts from God. God's going to be there, and he's going to give himself to us. What a great perspective that is to have. And when we don't expect to receive anything, we don't. When we understand that worship is an issue of the heart and that our hearts are very, very needy, then we have absolutely no time to fight over worship. And we realize that the only detail that really matters about worship is this. Only one. Is God going to be there and give himself to us? Yes or no? Because if he is, and then we'll worship. You see, you thought it was all about you and all about your needs. It's really not. Although you come and God meets our needs, it's not about us. It's all about him. Because without him, we got nothing. So, from now on, don't you wish you could do worship over again today? Oh, man, I ruined it. Uh, well, guess what? There's another one coming next week. Just show up next week. Ask the Holy Spirit to remember, to remind you of what you heard today. And walk in the door with this great expectation that you're going to meet your Father. Amen. And he's going to touch you. And you're going to commune together because it's a spiritual thing. And it's wonderful. It takes faith. It takes time in his word. How do you know what to say to God unless you read his word? 
Because that's where we see what we should do and say. So maybe that's another sermon for another day. We need him so very badly. So very badly. Let's pray. Oh, our gracious Father, you are so wonderful and so kind and so merciful to us, and you love us so much, so much more than we could ever know or comprehend. It's not even that you love us. It's the fact that you are love. You are love. And so when we come in here, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't walk in and just sit down and just say, well, what's going to happen today? I hope, Lord, that instead we would come in with this expectation of, receiving gifts from our Father who loves to lavish gifts upon us. Gifts of himself. That's all we need, Father. We don't need money or houses or cars or things. God, all we need is you. We just need you. And if we don't have you, Lord, then we have nothing. So it's all on you. Help us, Lord, to have the right perspective from this day forward. In Jesus' name.